Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. And this is your pediatric infectious disease doc, Dr. Santosh. And this is your local ER doc, Dr. Ward. And this week, we're going to wake you up before we go, go. (laughs) Don't leave you hanging on us like a yo-yo. Beautiful Beautiful singing voice. For those of you guys who don't know, I was honored to share the stage with both of these two gentlemen as members of the all-acapella medical school group, The Pacemakers. This week, I figured we would cover sleep medicine. And I know this has been a particular interest of yours, Ward, mostly because usually when we're trying to record, you're sleeping and felt that we were not giving this enough importance in terms of priorities. (laughs) Well, sleep deprivation has been known to cause some exciting historical events like the Exxon Valdez, Chernobyl, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It is. And when people fall asleep, terrible things happen. (laughs) Terrible, terrible things happen. And more on a very, very personal note for all three of us, sleep has become a terribly important subject in terms of physician training, especially in residency. Sleep has only really become a field of study very recently as we look back over the history. And we know that sleep is important, but we don't know why. And studies that have been done on rats, where scientists basically just deprived rats of sleep, All of the rats who were deprived of sleep died within two to three weeks. And this is not like they deprived them of one day and made them get up early. Sorry, teenagers. They (laughs) they talked about they did not let these rats get a single moment of sleep for two weeks. End of the two weeks, 
dead. Every last one. They got skin lesions. They got erosions. They had temperature changes. They died of sepsis. So we don't know why sleep is important, but we know that you have to have it. Oh, Pish, I call that my intern year. I mean, three weeks, no sleep. Try two to three years. <laughs> this is... Well, I also like the idea of scientists keeping a bunch of little rats awake like they see its eyes just starting to drift off, and then they start playing wham. <laughs> the interesting thing that you said the whole way through there, Josh, was that they didn't die of passing out or stopping breathing or something like that. They had dysfunction in things that you would never think of as directly affecting or affected by sleep, meaning their immune system. Let's go back to the earliest anyone really thought about sleep was in ancient Greece. The theory was just after you ate, that brought blood up to your brain and too much blood in your brain caused you to pass out, just like an off switch. Uh, that That was Aristotle and Galen's model of sleep. Basically, blood moves too fast, you turn off, just like the soulless robot that we've all become. <laughs> but in seven in the seventeenth century, the philosopher Rene Descartes would started to put forth a new model of sleep where he said the pineal gland played a gatekeeper role between sleep and alertness. And at this point, you know, anatomy had kind of shown that the pineal glands produced hormones, but people didn't really know what hormones were. They just knew that the pineal gland produced some sort of substance. And he thought that during sleep, this gland would produce a small amount of what he called animal spirits, causing the ventricles of the brain to collapse and the nerves, which act as pipes carrying fluid in his model, to become limp. And during wakefulness, the gland would be active and keep the ventricles open. So it was kind of like having a little on-off switch in your head, but he still wasn't able to really describe what caused that switch to flip from one direction to the other. It always sounded so scientific when he describes <laughs> the pineal gland until the animal spirits came in and the ventricles well, collapsing I, happened. Well, the, the animal spirits that he was talking about there is, to, with all respect to Descartes, you know, we're kind of using the same sort of verbiage. I mean, we're not putting in a word like animal spirit, but essentially we're still there. We, you know... Of course, the ventricles don't close and the uh, nerves don't convey any fluid, but we're still at this point where, what is that off switch? And so for him to use a term like animal spirits to as a substitute or a placeholder of, I don't know what the switch is, I think it was perfectly fine. And really, this is kind of, you know, from ancient Greece to 17th century, this was really the only model we had. Sleep is just, you are are turned off. That's it. Why do we sleep? Nobody knows. Just like, why did the chicken cross the road? Everyone had an answer. No one had the right one, and we still don't. Now, sleep wasn't really studied until the 1900s, and that was by Nathaniel Kleitman, who is known as the father of sleep research, which <laughs> it's a lot less interesting than I'm sure you're probably thinking. Most people are like, sleep research, let me just climb into bed. I'm going to do some research. <laughs> you see that? He rolled over. Write that down. We'll see you joke, Santosh, but that's actually what the first sleep labs were. Oh, nice. Uh, okay. Nathaniel Kleitman was a graduate of the University of Chicago. Woohoo. Um, he was an immigrant from Moldova, came over mm-hmm. in 
early 1900s. I know Moldova, I thought, was just a country made up for supervillains and comic books, but it's a real place. <laughs> he wrote the fir- very first paper on sleep physiology in 1939, and it really was. He would just watch people in bed in a totally not-at-all-creepy way. <laughs> sure. A little creepy. A little creepy. <laughs> He's like, I want you to fall asleep so I can study you and watch Let you me watch and you. write down things that you're doing. <laughs> really creepy. Okay, go on. Established. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I think the one of my favorite things that I learned doing the research for this episode is an early sponsor of his sleep research was the Wander Company. Now, in case you're not familiar with the Wander Company, they manufacture rich chocolatey Ovaltine, and <laughs> they hoped to promote it as a remedy for insomnia. Oh, so the wow, very okay. first research you can thank for, more Ovaltine, please, <laughs> it was an attempt. Now, he didn't want to study it for that. He wanted to just know what was going on with sleep. Sure. But the Wander Company said, you know what? Everybody knows that a glass of warm milk helps you fall asleep. There you go. And we have a product that is like warm milk, so... If we can get a scientist to back us, we can say Ovaltine, remedy for insomnia, and this was their ad in early World War II. Nice, very nice. So after Ovaltine sponsored Kleitman's sleep research, (laughs) one of his graduate students, Eugene Asarinsky, decided to hook sleepers up to an early version of the electroencephalogram, which is the EEG a machine that, for those of you not familiar with it, measures brain brain waves. And when you see it at work, it almost looks like a tiny little lie detector or Richter scale. It's got, some of it gets hooked up to the patient. There's a lot of electrodes and they transmit and read electrical activity and scribble waveforms of that represent that activity onto a piece of paper on a nearby machine. Well, Asarinsky noted as You know, as the graduate student, he was the one assigned to creepily watch the sleeping people. (laughs) And he noted that several times during the night, all of the sleepers would go through periods when their eyes would just dart very wildly back and forth. And he went and he told this to Kleitman. And Kleitman said, ugh, whatever, graduate student, you need to go back and repeat this again and again and again. (laughs) And... Eventually, Kleitman insisted that this experiment be repeated on his own daughter. And they noticed that this was consistent across age, gender, race, every every possible variable. Everyone experienced this eyes darting back and forth movement. And he basically published a paper on it in 1953 and called it rapid eye movement or REM sleep. And they later went on to prove that this was correlated with dreaming and brain activity. So keep in mind, up until, you know, again, the 1900s, we just thought sleep was an off switch. It happened and we didn't know why. Not until 1953, we didn't even know REM sleep existed. Well, yeah, we knew quantum theory and um, came pretty close to the um, came pretty close to the first atomic bomb. So another one of the graduate students, a William Dement, and he was a contemporary of Asarinsky, he was the one who actually looked at the REM sleep and the waveforms and was the first to discover the stages of sleep. He also noted that there were people who would have episodes where they would stop breathing 
during sleep. And he created what's known as the apnea hypopnea index, which we'll talk about. He also founded the very first sleep research institute at Stanford in the 70s and invented this multiple sleep latency test. All things we're going to cover. This guy was a trooper. And if Kleitman was the father of sleep research, then Dr. William Demint is the father of sleep medicine, and he's still alive today. So the 1970s were really the big period defining the field of sleep medicine. And, and that makes sense. If you consider how many drugs people were doing in the 60s, they all needed a nap <laughs> during the 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This was the first hint that there was something going on in sleep that was not just shutting down and shutting off, that there was actually active something going on while we were sleeping. And it made a little bit more sense, finally, that there's there was a reason to sleep, you know, not just powering down, etc., but maybe there was some brain activity that was going on during sleep that could only happen when we hit those stages of REM. And it sounds like this was the first time when he said, hey, you know what, that snoring, that doesn't sound right. Hey, maybe it wasn't right. (laughs) Yeah. You know, before that, snoring was just something that your husband or wife did, and you're like, well, this is the person I'm stuck with, and I can either learn to live with it or murder them. (laughs) And if you go go through Victorian England histories, it looks like murder them was a pretty (laughs) viable option. (laughs) But you don't have to do that anymore, because now it's a science. This was the very first episode of a sleep punk, which is my new name for a field I just invented and involves steampunk and sleeping. Nice. That is how I think of Victorian era sleep punk. Well, that that's a good place to start because, you know, we, originally from Descartes and everything, there, the thought was that this was all various hydraulics moving around causing us to shut down. Sure. So why don't we talk about the stages of sleep? And, you know, this may be new for some of you. Some people may just realize that there's sleep and REM sleep. I think most people now are aware of REM, uh, not least for their wonderful song, End of the World as We Know It. (laughs) But I feel fine. Now, there used to be four stages of sleep plus REM. And since about 2008, that's been condensed, and there's really only three stages of sleep that are recognized prior to REM. So when when you go to bed and you climb in to bed, you have, and as you fall asleep, you kind of move in cycles where you'll progress from stage one all the way to stage two, stage three, REM sleep, and then you go from REM sleep back into stage one. And a full cycle taking you through all of the sleep takes about 90 minutes with much more non-REM sleep in the beginning of the night, and then as you do three or four cycles throughout the night, the longer you're asleep, the more you have long REM periods. Coincidentally, that 90 minutes, for me personally, that is also the best nap time. If You, you know how you, if you overshoot and you nap a little bit too much and you cut into a sleep cycle and a half, you wake up messed up, let's just say. Sure. Um, you you and, feel more tired than when you Exactly. And if you undercut it and you only do, I don't know, like 30 minutes and you wake up in the middle of stage two, you kind of also wake up not feeling quite right. Right. Uh, but for whatever reason, an hour and a half for me, oh, my God, if you can, if you can catch yourself waking up in the exact right time, feels great. 
And this is a great kind of introduction, again, for something else that we're going to talk about later. A 90-minute nap is going to end up being a fantastic way to treat jet lag. And it's specifically, you know, set your alarm for that 90 to 100 minutes for a nap time because that really will help your body to reorient. Mm -hmm. All right, so now that you know what a sleep cycle is and that everybody has multiple sleep cycles in a night, stage one is what most of you kind of think of as your, you've just gone to bed. It's a very light sleep. You may be drifting in and out of wakefulness. You'll have some slowed muscle activity. It's very often associated with a sensation of falling where you're suddenly like, oh, well, what just happened there? And you can have sudden muscle contractions. That's like bus sleep, right? It's like yeah. if, if I fall asleep on the CTA for two stops. <laughs> right, right. And then you've got stage two. In stage two, eye movement will stop and your brain waves start to slow down and there'll be occasional bursts of activity within the brain, you are still capable of moving. You know, this might be when you could possibly roll out of bed, but you're pretty zonked. And if you get woken up during this stage, you're not going to have any clue what's going on. Stage three, which used to be a combination of stage three and stage four, is, the, is slow wave sleep. It's the most restful. It is very easily identified on an EEG because it has what we call delta waves, which look like tiny little spikes or mountains. Uh, stage three sleep is when you are very, very disinhibited in the sense that this is the stage when people are often affected by behaviors such as bedwetting, night terrors, or sleepwalking. So you're not aware of what's going on, but you still have muscle control and it is also the most restful sleep. If you make it as far as stage three, you will be pretty good in terms of getting up and going about your day. That's the stage and where then, your brain hasn't disconnected itself from the rest of the body. Where you're Very often people tend to associate sleepwalking and they think it's REM. And that's actually a very different disorder, which exactly. is called REM, you know, awareness disorder versus som somnambulism which is the medical term for sleepwalking, and, and sounds great. That sounds like a superhero. Everybody watch out, it's the somnambulist. <laughs> somnambulator. Sleep-stabbing sleep and, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, there, there is. There are, there are cases of sleep-stabbing. And, and finally, the last stage is REM, and that is characterized by, obviously, rapid eye movement, but also muscle atonia, meaning your muscles, as Ward mentioned earlier, are completely disconnected from your brain, and that's to prevent you from lashing out, from moving around, basically from injuring yourself, because this is going to be the stage where you dream. And if you're woken up during REM sleep, you will very often remember your dreams, at least temporarily. This is the stage that is, although we don't know why, most crucial to a lot of people's development. Infants who have been studied spend about 50% of their time asleep in REM. And if you think about how much infants sleep, sorry, new parents, I'm talking scientifically, not practically. <laughs> if you think about how much time infants spend asleep and figure that half of that time is spent in REM, that is pretty impressive. Whereas by the time we're adults, we're only spending roughly 20% of our sleep time in REM. So if you figure you're sleeping about eight hours a night, two of those hours collectively will be in REM sleep. Now, very interestingly, I know we talked about the dangers of sleep deprivation in the long term, but 
Sleep deprivation of REM specifically has actually been clinically shown and studied to improve depression and suicidal ideation. So some of the treatments that people who are in mental hospitals with suicide or depression, one of the treatments they use in addition to or as an alternative to ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, is to simply watch them until they hit REM sleep and then wake them up and make sure they don't get REM sleep only. And this has been shown to improve mood in a statistically significant manner. ECT is no piece of cake. No, no. But then again, neither is being woken up every time you're just starting to get to the good part of a dream. So, (laughs) you know, those of you who have... Friends out there who you think might be depressed, wake them up. There you go. <laughs> well, this if is they don't a, sleep, stab you in a. Oh, <laughs> no. This is, <laughs> they this will is thank therefore you. an issue of balance, right? So if you're getting what your brain needs in terms of an appropriate amount of the various stages of sleep, then you wake up refreshed, you're a little bit ready to start the day, and and everything is kind of good to go. If there's either an undershoot or an overshoot of any of these stages of sleep, then you have sleep pathology or sleep problems. So before we start talking about what the large range of sleep problems are, why don't we kind of go over how do you diagnose that there even is a sleep problem? Well, you you yeah. got to be creepy. You got to be creepy. Well, it's not creepy if you're doing it to yourself. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there are Let's people everywhere just going, yes, a doctor just said it. <laughs> It's less creepy. So, let's, let's give Josh that. It's less creepy when you watch yourself. <laughs> it's less creepy. Um, so if you do have a problem with sleep, whether it's insomnia, whether it's you know constantly falling asleep during the day, or whether you have something that's even more that seems more rare than that, the very first step when you go to a sleep lab, the first thing that a sleep doctor is going to do. But the very first thing they do is the same thing you do in any field of medicine, which is they get a sleep history. What are your sleep habits? Are you on any medications? How much alcohol are you taking in? How much nicotine and caffeine are you taking in? Do you have any other illnesses? And what's your sleep environment? Because if you're sleeping, you know, on a cold stone floor in the middle of a hospital, then, yeah, you're probably not going to sleep as well as you would in a five-star hotel on a feather bed. <laughs> and, Ward, I think uh, you can testify to this as we have spent our our years traveling in a multitude of various sleep things from, you know, cheesy-smelling tents on rocky ground in the mountains mm-hmm. to five-star hotels. <laughs> to a moving train that serves uh, delicious and yet dangerous chai. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. And we're getting ready to embark on another train-related sleep journey, the Trans-Siberian Railway, where we will be cooped up and sleeping in a train for almost four or five days straight. I can't wait. So. And one of the first solutions or methods of diagnosis that the sleep doctor may assign you is to keep a sleep diary. Now, does, this does not mean, dear diary, today I... Z- <laughs> z- 
No, uh, the diary shouldn't. Will usually include things like the time you're going to bed, your total sleep time, which obviously you write the next morning. <laughs> sure. Time to sleep onset. So how long you think you're taking to fall asleep? Not how many times you wake up during the night. What time you get up in the morning, and how you feel in the morning? Do you feel well rested? Do you feel tired? Things like that. Now, this was sort of the earliest method. The sleep diary can be replaced or validated by the use of a device, which I think is going to sound very familiar to a lot of you. Now, Santosh Ward, have either of you ever heard of Actigraphy? Uh, I had not before this show. No, no, I've never heard of it before. So tell me, stop me when this sounds like something familiar. An actigraph is a motion-sensing device that's worn on the wrist, generally for one or two weeks. It gives a gross picture of sleep-wake cycles by tracking your wrist motions, by tracking your heart rate. Does, does this sound like any device, a motion-sensing device? Oh, is this something that... So this is I don't want to get sued. Fair use. So it, yeah, it's a it's a sensor like a like a pedometer, but will also sense motion as you sleep. Right. So I mean, obviously, the one that I I personally am most familiar with is the Fitbit. But any of these trackers, like the Jawbone and the few all the fitness trackers that include a sleep component, and you're supposed to wear it to sleep, and it tells you how many hours you sleep and how many times you wake up during the night. And well, I have one of these devices like, with the hope of being able to measure when I go to sleep and wake me up 90 minutes after I actually fall asleep. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, so it gives you like a little buzz or something like that? Exactly, exactly. Um, but let's just say that these devices are not 100%, um, 100% accurate. Right. And this, is, this has been studied, and both the Fitbit itself, you know, the, the trademarked Fitbit was studied as well as the actigraph. And it did tend to overestimate how much time people were actually asleep. The Fitbit sometimes by as much as an hour. So you may think you got an hour or eight hours of sleep, judging by your Fitbit, and you might have only gotten seven. So it's not perfect, but it does give you a much better idea of how long you're asleep. The Fitbit is also not designed to tell people what's a normal amount of sleep, how many times you should be expected to wake up each night, or what constitutes a good sleep efficiency. For example, did you know when you sleep, you're not supposed to be asleep for you know the solid eight hours completely unconscious. You are going to have periods where you are supposed to, as a normal part of sleep, wake up during the night. Oh yeah, you're supposed to twist and turn and, you know. As you go through the sleep cycle, you will periodically enter stage one sleep, which is a very light sleep, and one when you can be kind of jolted awake. Right. So... It also doesn't tell you what a good sleep efficiency score is. Um, oh, no, that sounds scientific. Right? That sounds, that sounds good, scientific, and even German. Ah, yeah. ah, your sleep is inefficient. Is inefficient. Or, or Japanese. Your sleep is inefficient. You have bad efficiency. We must work on your sleep efficiency. So for those of you who would like to calculate your own sleep efficiency scores at home, the, per, the, the score is you take the percentage of time that you are actually asleep versus or, or divided by the percentage of time that you spend in bed and you give yourself a ratio and a normal or good a normal sleep efficiency score should be higher than 85%. Hmm. That makes sense. 
So this is still with the data that we have and how we understand sleep to, or I should say, the the factors that we understand that make sleep the most efficient. So the score is not perfect because we still don't understand all the components that's needed for a really perfect night's rest. But this is the closest that we've gotten with the data that we have available. Right, and keep in mind, you know, you get a hundred percent sleep efficiency with a good solid nap. Right. You know, you're if you're in bed for an hour and you're asleep for an hour, boom, hundred percent efficiency. Can you survive like that? Probably not for the long term. <laughs> and this is it was interesting because we we've gotten into this day and age now with um, you know we've got electrical lights so that we've got lights going on all the time. We've got sound from traffic and all these things. So we're trying to sleep through the night, but before we had all these artificial light and sound sources, there was a phenomenon where you'd wake up in the middle of the night and you'd get some stuff done, and then you'd go back to sleep. So you wouldn't have that eight-hour stretch. You'd have like four and four. And I think that's one of the origins of the term burning the midnight oil. That's true, and we used we didn't start sleeping or promote sleeping eight hours a night until the Industrial Revolution. Right. Uh, but I am not going to bore you because we've already been through the history section of this episode. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> Look it up, people. It's it's Victorian England, and as you all know, I could talk about that for oh days. And Don't days. get him started on the steampunk CPAP machine. <laughs> right, the sleep punk, sleep punk, sleep punk, sleep punk. Right. Uh, I'm going to use that on my kid. Go to sleep, punk. (laughs) So the next test that you'll see in these sleep labs, and one of the main ones that people are referred out there for, is called polysomnography, or multiple sleep readings. And this is done in a sleep laboratory while the patient sleeps at his or her usual sleeping time. It's not usually used for people with insomnia or circadian rhythm disorders. It's mostly used to look for sleep apnea. And you get hooked up to a whole bunch of different electrodes. With There's a minimum of 12 different channels and 22 wires. So you end up looking like somebody coming out of the matrix <laughs> when you're in one of these labs. And they put all that stuff on you and they say, go to sleep. <laughs> right, right. Once you're hooked up to all these wires, totally comfortable. <laughs> there is a minimum, there'll be at least three channels recording your brain waves, a couple channels that'll measure your breathing, one or two are attached to your chin, and that's how they determine your muscle tone and if you're clenching your teeth. A couple will be on your legs, and a few will even be over your eyes, so, you know, you can't tell if you're in rapid eye movement unless we put electrodes on your eyes. And there'll also be one or two for heart rate and rhythm, one for oxygen, and all these different electrodes. And they will kind of track your whole sleep through the night, your wake cycles, and they'll say, oh, well, we noted, you know, you stopped breathing this many times, or you tossed and turned this many. It gives the sleep doctors a whole group of data that they can analyze and get back to you with. That sounds so uncomfortable. I'm sorry. (laughs) well, that's that's a big problem, is that people don't always feel comfortable in these sleep labs, so how how can you get accurate data? And if we're really lucky, I will hopefully manage to get to interview an actual sleep doctor, or I'm just going to start calling them sleep punks. <laughs> um, you'll get to interview, we'll get to interview a sleep punk who can talk us through, you know, how they deal with being in a strange, unfamiliar environment and having all these tests done and trying to act normal while it is. 
the last test, and you know, again, the one that was invented in the 70s and is still used today, is called the multiple sleep latency test. Now, Ward, I think you're going to like this one. It's often performed during the entire day or for an eight or nine hour period the day after polysomnography. So you've already spent all night trying to fall asleep in a very uncomfortable environment, all electrodes. (laughs) Yeah. So what they do is when you wake up in the morning, they leave the electrodes on, they leave the equipment in place, and the patient is given nap opportunities every other hour. So this goes on for about seven or eight hours. So every other hour you're told to nap. And then when you're trying to nap, the scientists will sit off in the corner of the room, totally not being creepy, don't mind us, nothing to see here, <laughs> and they will measure the number of minutes it takes from the start of a daytime nap period to the first signs of sleep and a couple other things. It's a measure of daytime sleepiness, and it also shows if you're achieving REM in a, when you're taking these short naps. And that could be an indication of narcolepsy. And this sleep latency test was created in 1977 by William Demont. <laughs> I don't know. That sounds some, something in between a waterboarding episode and, I don't know, a, an unpopular booth at Folsom Street Fair. No, no, don't mind me. Just go take a nap. I will sit over here in the oh. corner and then take some notes. Nothing go wrong. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So now that we've talked about the tools in the Sleep Punk's uh, Steam Kit, <laughs> I'm going to go and like start drawing Sleep Punk's the second we finish with this episode. Yeah, this is good inspiration. I like it. Let's talk about what the actual sleep problems are. And there's two main categories. One is called dysomnias. And these are problems that produce complaints of being unable to sleep or being excessively sleepy. And the other is called parasomnias, which are problems that don't affect you from falling asleep, but they occur as while you are actually sleeping. Right, or as you're falling asleep. Right. Or, yeah, as you're just falling asleep rather than preventing you from getting to sleep. So let's take a moment and let's go off on our tangent here. Ward, why don't we start with the one that is most pertinent to travel, jet lag. Oh, yeah. We've all experienced jet lag in your your extensive travel history. Way too often. I'm, I'm horrible with jet lag. Yeah. My stomach gets jet lag and wants to eat at odd times, but my brain 
pretty much goes unconscious for most flights. And I'm one of those lucky people who doesn't matter if I'm in first class or coach, wheels are up and I'm out. <laughs> well, funny you should mention that because, you know, jet lag technically doesn't really happen until about a day or two after you've traveled. So while you're on the plane in transit time, that's a separate issue. But, you know, our, all our bodies have our own internal clocks or circadian rhythms. It's largely set by daylight. Jet lag is actually a temporary sleep sleep disorder for people who travel across multiple time zones because let's say, for example, um, you leave New York at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday. And you... Uh, oh, no. Is there a train traveling oh, from Cincinnati? Right. <laughs> and plane B leaves from Paris. No. Okay. Yeah. If you arrive in Paris at 7 a.m., right? But that's only actually a five-hour flight. So gotcha. your body is still, you know, maybe a little bit longer. So your, your body still thinks it's 10 p.m. or 1 a.m., somewhere in the middle of the night. But guess what? It's actually 7 a.m. in Paris. That's when problems start to happen. Your body wants to fall asleep, but your the surrounding around you tells you that, hey, you know what? It's daytime. The influence of sunlight, so the sunlight actually directly hits the tissue be- behind your eye, your retina, and it transmits light signals to an area of your brain called the hypothalamus. And that area is responsible for our circadian rhythm. Um, so if you're body is in Paris and your your body clock circadian rhythm thinks you're in New York, well, you know, you, you might end up with symptoms like disturbed sleep. When it's, when it's sleep time in Paris, your body wants to party because it thinks it's in New York. Or quite the opposite can happen. When it's daytime in Paris, your body thinks it should be asleep. So daytime fatigue is another symptom of, um, of jet lag. And while you're while your body should be awake, you might have difficulty concentrating or functioning at your normal level. You might have stomach problems, constipation or diarrhea. Or in Josh's case, it's it's always hungry all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. I'm I'm just a fat kid at heart. <laughs> uh, you might get moody or you might just get a general feeling of not feeling well. So now, yeah. Ward, when you mentioned that the light hits your, your hypothalamus, the hypothalamus actually, senses. right, it, it hits the retina, and that from your retina transmits those signals to an area of your brain called the hypothalamus, and then the hypothalamus will tell the pineal gland to release melatonin, or as Descartes thought of it, animal That's spirits. Right. <laughs> now it comes in bottles at CVS. Yeah, uh, <laughs> which does not work nearly as well as endogenous melatonin secreted by your pineal gland at the right time. Yeah, anybody who's taking that goes. Well, hey, guess what? Um, so yeah. let's, you know, it's no coincidence that I mentioned you're flying from New York to Paris. Which direction of fly actually has an effect on how much, how severe the jet lag potentially can be? If you travel in an easterly direction, so from New York to Paris, from California to New York, or in my case, uh, one year I traveled from New York to Amsterdam, and that's actually a tougher that's a tougher direction because you're switching your body clock back to an earlier time zone. And as we know, getting up earlier, you know, with that daylight savings time, with that, oh, when you have to set that black clock back one hour early, oh, it's so painful. 
So what you're basically saying, Ward, is the more time zones you cross, the more likely you are to be jet-lagged. Precisely, and especially if you cross time zones in an easterly direction because you're turning your clock back. You have to wake up earlier. So, for example, one of the worst cases in the entire history of the universe of jet lag would be experienced by Marty McFly. Maybe that's why he always has trouble getting places on time and why Doc is so crazy. He's just chronically sleep deprived. That's right. It's a bad case of... Um, bad case of like, Come uh, on, Marty! We gotta get back! Take a to bed! <laughs> <laughs> you know, th- there are some other things that uh, maybe can contribute to worsening jet lag. Air cabin pressure, dehydration, higher altitudes, humidity levels are lower, frequent flyer being older. So let, let me ask you, Ward, as a avid traveler, what can I do to prevent or minimize jet lag? So jet lag is really a problem with their circadian rhythm, and you know one of the one of the ways to get you out of that jet lag pattern is to reset that circadian rhythm, and that circadian rhythm is really set by exposure to sunlight. Um, so one of the ways you can minimize jet lag is to use light therapy. So when you do fly into Paris, when your body thinks it's in New York and it's 1 a.m. in the morning, go take a walk. They'll be exposed to that sunlight so it knows that this is daylight time. And when it's time to sleep, stay away from bright lights and kind of just get that darkness to set in. And hopefully your body, after a few days, can get used to the new circadian rhythm and get used to a new time zone. The opposite of a light box or a sunlight source is one of the potential ways of, you know, getting that, getting your body to think that it's nighttime is to take that melatonin, you know, because that is the natural hormone that's released when it's dark outside. And, you know, some studies and some doctors will propose that um, if you take a melatonin at nighttime when you're supposed to be asleep, that might get your body into the thinking that it's it's actually nighttime outside. And, you know, another just common sense way to get your body used to being in the morning, you know, just do something physically active. Go take a jog in the morning. And and if you're not a fan of a jog, you can do my option, which is, I know you're also fond of Ward, which is what we like to call a morning constitutional. Oh, Simply get out, get out of bed in the morning and just go for a walk. Don't go anywhere. Don't try and accomplish anything. Just get yourself up and moving where light can hit you. And, you know, the opposite is also true. Avoiding light in certain times can be important. So, travelers going west um well you might want to avoid avoid light time in the morning for the first few days just to get your body to get used to the new system the new the new circadian rhythm so this these techniques first of all work really well with uh people who have regular schedules anyway so if you come from a lifestyle where you're eating and sleeping and kind of everything else is scrambled to begin with, then you may be at a disadvantage to try to fight jet lag anyhow. But you have Right, and Santos, you actually brought up an excellent an excellent alternative which is known as it's another one of the circadian rhythm disorders. Okay. And that's shift work sleep disorder. Okay. Uh, people who work as grave diggers or night docs or or any job that is kind of done at after hours, 
um, and they find that they are constantly tired during their job and zonked during yeah. the day. And unfortunately, really, the only treatment is to sort of change sure. jobs. But that that is a very classic example of a circadian. So let's talk about some of the other dysomnias now that we've touched on the major one. And since since you brought up 3 a.m. Dutch, let's talk about insomnia ward. A lot of time it's usually due to an underlying disorder. So there are very few cases of insomnia that's just pure somebody can't fall asleep. Very often there will be some other medical condition and we're taught to look for those first. But insomnia is not just, ah, I had one night where I had trouble getting to sleep. Everybody has those. It's when a person has trouble getting to sleep and awakening early, but they have a normal sleep pattern once asleep, that's just a delayed circadian rhythm. Insomnia really is you do not have a normal sleep pattern. And that may mean that you're not getting sufficient REM or slow wave sleep and you're spending most of what time you are asleep in stage one or two. And that's why you're kind of always awake and restless, is you're not getting enough of the correct sleep pattern. I will back you up on so, that. Um, at 3 o'clock in the morning, believe it or not, people come into the the emergency room for um, with a chief complaint of, I can't sleep. And part of the problem is that they're in the emergency room. Like, this is not a place to sleep. Um, but... Um, also, there is almost invariably, invariably, there's almost always something wrong with something else that's going on. Anxiety, depression, um, poor oh, coping mechanisms, poor sleeping, poor sleeping, poor sleep hygiene, or something else that's causing this insomnia. It's almost never isolated by itself. It's almost never just a circadian rhythm, rhythm disorder by itself. Right. So if if you're just having trouble getting to sleep and waking up early, you may just have a delayed circadian rhythm or one of the circadian disorders. Uh, but you actually have to have disturbances in the normal sleep pattern to be diagnosed with insomnia. And it's treated with cognitive behavioral therapy. So basically teaching you better sleep hygiene and a couple different things. One of the behavioral therapy techniques is known as paradoxical intention. Uh, most people will kind of sit in bed and keep trying to fall asleep at night. So the paradoxical treatment for insomnia says instead of attempting to fall asleep, you make every effort to stay awake. You know, start writing the great American novel or watch a marathon of Dutch friends. Uh, do anything you can to avoid going to sleep specifically. And that is meant to relieve some of the performance anxiety that arises from the need or requirement to fall asleep, which is supposed to be passive. You shouldn't have to try to fall asleep. It should happen sure, naturally. Sure. And I love the idea of sleep performance anxiety, <laughs> although it is a very real problem. I'm just like, listen, listen, I'm, I'm really sorry. This doesn't usually happen. But... But I just, I can't fall asleep tonight. And, you know, people do worry about it even subconsciously. So one of the treatments is rather than forcing yourself to be like, I'm supposed to be asleep, stay up. Force yourself to stay up and let your own body say, all right, enough of this. So now one of the other very well-known, thanks to movies and television, but much more rare sleep disorders or dysomnias is narcolepsy. Well, narcolepsy, for me anyway, it's, it's, it's really terrible that this is where I go first, but I th a deuce bigelow, male gigolo. Yeah. 
a fantastic <laughs> film. I think that I watched like, it twice. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, the the male gigolo played by the amazing. Everybody's favorite half Filipino Scientologist, oh, Rob absolutely. Schneider. There's a scene where he's going out with a young lady who has narcolepsy. I think the most memorable scene is she says, Oh, I've always wanted to try soup. And there's a big, beautiful bowl of soup in front of her, and she goes to drink it, and she falls asleep. But then her head whips back just before she falls face first into the soup, and they've tied her long, beautiful hair to a light fixture, so that even if she falls asleep, she doesn't go face first into the soup. I'm guessing that's not the official treatment for narcolepsy. No, no. <laughs> no, 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 it is not. Um, <laughs> and it does, it does play to comedic effect, but it is actually a pretty debilitating disorder. There are four things that are very commonly seen, and you do not have to have all of them, but you will see many of them. And First and foremost is excessive daytime sleepiness, even after adequate nighttime sleep, meaning you can go to bed, get eight hours of sleep in a night, and still be falling asleep and having trouble getting through the day. That's, that's kind of the bare minimum. Also, you'll have episodes of hypnagogic hallucinations or hallucinations as you're going right. to sleep. So you may hear voices and ha- or see things. You'll have sleep paralysis meaning when you are asleep, it's you have that same disconnect that you normally see in REM, but you have it in all stages. And finally, about 70% of people who have narcolepsy will have cataplexy, which is what we see played to comedic effect in the movies. And that is a sudden transient episode of muscle weakness accompanied by full awareness, usually triggered by strong emotions such as laughing, crying, or terror. Um, If you want to enjoy a good giggle, go Google the narcoleptic goats, (laughs) and you'll see there's one tiny little baby goat who goes zipping around, jumps, gets really excited, and then immediately collapses. Right. And it's played to a Benny Hill soundtrack, and I I watched it on loop for almost an hour (laughs) nonstop laughing. But and this is this was also shown on on MythBusters where you could shock the goats and get them to fall over, and this is not a nice thing to do. Um, you know they no, they suffer uh, emotional distress, and the scary thing about this part when you're cataplectic and not narcoleptic in that episode is that. You are paralyzed, but you are fully aware of what's going on. So the the tough part about this is you don't want to fall over and you don't even get to uh, be asleep or passed out when you maybe even hit the ground, but you are fully awake and you know you don't want to fall over and pass out, but you have to because your muscles and, don't work. Right. Right. And that's kind of what they were showing in that Deuce Bigelow. And it is very associated, triggered by strong emotions. So these people don't often go to movies or weddings or things like that. Anything that might set them off into one of these episodes. Now, this disorder tends to be most common in people ages 40 to 60. And after that, it doesn't really come up. That's sort of the the most likely period. You don't see a lot of teenage narcoleptics because how could you tell? Ah. 
and <laughs> I'm I'm giving such a hard time to teenagers this episode. We're getting old. We're, uh, now, hey, can I just say we're getting old? We're complaining about teenagers now. We are. We are. We, we are. are. Those damn kids need to get off yeah. my lawn. Um, but the other factor that you'll see in narcolepsy is REM sleep actually tends to occur at sleep onset instead of after non-REM. So that's why you get the hallucinations. You enter, you jump straight from being awake into a waking dream where you're paralyzed and don't have muscle control, and then you go into sort of the the unknown dark. Right. So that's why. So that's, you know, again, and we could do an entire episode on some of these, but we're just going to gloss over and touch lightly on some of the more interesting ones as we are starting to get a bit short on time. Um, another fun one doesn't show up very often is known as Sleeping Beauty Syndrome or Klein-Levin. And funnily enough, Sleeping Beauty Syndrome actually affects mostly males, <laughs> not yeah. women. And it is known as recurrent hypersomnia. So it's different from narcolepsy in that you can't, it's not triggered by strong emotions, but people who have sleeping beauty syndrome will have anywhere from two to three episodes a year of this recurrent hypersomnia. And during episodes that could last up to a week, patients will sleep anywhere from 15 to 21 hours a day. Uh, this may sound great, but what happens is the, for the three or four hours that they are awake, they will have a childlike state. They can't separate what's dreaming from what's real. They could be confused. They may be apathetic. And it's actually very difficult to differentiate from depression and bipolar disorder. Um, now, I did mention this mostly affects adolescent males, Although there are some female patients, and you'll also see a lot of hyperphagia, or people be when they're eating, they'll be or when they're awake, they'll be nonstop eating or masturbating because it's associated with hypersexuality. <laughs> and these are all so, things which are regulated by areas of the hypothalamus, which are anatomically and hormonally close to one another. So it makes sense that sleep, sex, and uh, appetite kind of all go together. And when you do brain imaging studies, it'll look totally normal. And, you know, that's how you differentiate it from strokes or deterioration or a couple other conditions is two, two to three times a year, they'll have a week-long period where they really cannot physically do anything. They cannot be awake. They cannot be roused. And when they are roused, they have no clue what's real and what isn't, which is a real disability. And again, this is something that is a little bit less rare, and we think Sleeping Beauty, and like, oh, well, you know, that sounds nice. She was out for 100 years. <laughs> but let me tell you, if you've, if you've ever read the Grimm Brothers story, uh, Sleeping Beauty woke up with twins, and she's like, "What? where did I go just now? How did I get pregnant? <laughs> Any decent Disney princess story, when you go back to the source material, it's, it's dark. dark. Very dark. Uh, now, this disease, Sleeping Beauty, will usually resolve by the late 30s. So, you know, right around the time that you get out of Sleeping Beauty syndrome, you start being at risk for narcolepsy. Let's move on to the parasomnias, or disorders that, that occur during sleep, and then we'll kind of talk very briefly about treatments and wrap it up. Now, one of the more interesting parasomnias interestingly, is known as obesity hypoventilation. And 
sleep apnea. Now, those are two different disorders, but they are very closely linked. And interestingly enough, the very first time sleep apnea or obstructive sleep apnea and obesity hypoventilation was described was not by a clinical doctor, but in my favorite time period. (laughs) Victorian era. By Charles Dickens in 1836. <laughs> oh, are we, one of my favorite about, are we talking about Pickwick? Yes, we're talking about Pickwickian syndrome. And it is not Mr. Pickwick himself, no. uh, but Dickens in his stories, which were done... He wrote these stories to basically sell plates. <laughs> <laughs> they were periodicals. Like I said, we could, we could go down a whole historical thing, which I will not force you to suffer sure. through. But in the Pickwick papers, the, Charles Dickens described an excessively sleepy, overweight boy named Joe <laughs> who snored and may have had right-sided heart failure. So I'm going to just read you a very, very brief excerpt from the Pickwick papers and you know Joe is very constantly hungry he's very red in the face he's always falling asleep in the middle of tasks so here we go Uh, the object that presented itself to the eyes of the astonished clerk was a boy a wonderfully fat boy habited as a serving lad standing upright on the mat with his eyes closed as if in sleep sleep said the old gentleman he's always asleep goes on errands fast asleep and snores as he waits at the table. Well, how very odd, said Mr. Pickwick. Odd indeed, returned the old gentleman. I'm proud of that boy. Wouldn't part with him on any account. He's a natural curiosity. Joe, wake up. There's pie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's, it's wonderful. So that was honestly the first time a medical diagnosis was ever written about. And it was by Charles Dickens, of all people. It really was an odd time, wasn't it? Uh, But yeah, so this was described in the Pickwick Papers, but obstructive sleep apnea as a condition was not recognized as a clinical disorder until about 100 years later. Hmm. Wow. So obesity hypoventilation is actually when people are so, so obese that they are their own neck fat may be kind of choking off their airway and they're not able to breathe rapidly enough or deep enough to get sufficient oxygen to their brain. So the brain, when it thinks it's not getting enough oxygen, will kind of start to shut down and these people will go into napping phases and this can put a strain on the heart and can ultimately lead to a lot of sleep apnea and ultimately an early death. So the treatments for this, it used to be tracheostomy, poking a hole in the throat to kind of bypass all those things, was the only treatment. Yes, that was very Victorian. And that was the only treatment until around the 1960s when a Japanese surgeon, Takenosuke Ikamatsu, came up with the uvulopalatopharyngeoplasty, the little dangly part in the back (laughs) of your throat. Off the soft palate, yeah. Uh Right. He would cut out the little dangly bit in the back of your throat and cut your soft palate. And that would, again, prevent your airway from closing and allow people to get enough air in that they would not be in danger of passing out or getting insufficient oxygen. And that was the improvement over tracheostomy. In 1981, we got the continuous positive airway pressure machine, CPAP, and that is the primary treatment used today. 
And that is all I will say about that because, again, we could go into great detail on some of these and simply do not have the time. We did talk about sleepwalking and somnambulism. It's actually, sleepwalking is most likely to be seen in children or people who are on benzodiazepines or alcohol. So if you're taking any of the Z drugs, Esozoclone, Ambien, Zolpidem, um, you know, you have to be careful because you may be up and walking and these are people who sleep cook, who sleep, you know, walk, and they can pose a danger. In fact, we have one friend who I will not identify by name, who period, who had to stop taking Ambien because she was in the habit of making sleep bacon, <laughs> which, which sounds, sounds great, great yeah. initially because, you know, you wake up and, hey, bacon, but imagine dealing with bacon grease and open flames and knives and cooking and all of that while you were totally unconscious and unaware. Sure, unaware. sure. Yeah, it's, I mean, there have been documented cases of sleep, stabbing, sleep, crimes being committed and you know I, that's what one of the things i tell my patients when they ask me for i'm not going to name the names but one of these name brand sleep uh sleeping aids for sleep and i say hey you know what there is a potential for a side effect with and finally the last one we'll kind of very briefly touch on is night terrors which are different than nightmares nightmares take place during rem night terrors take place during non-rem or usually during stage three and it's like a sleeping panic attack. You're awake enough to be in a state of confusional, confusional arousal. You may lash out at the person attempting to waken them. It's very often associated with anxiety, anxiety disorders and PTSD. And it even goes to some artwork, which I will link to in the show notes, where people show things like a goblin sitting on their chest. Because people will wake up, they'll be paralyzed, they won't feel like they can breathe. And again, it's very similar to that narcoleptic type attack, only you suddenly wake up and you can't move and you're paralyzed and you have the sensation of something being in the room with you or right. on you. So very disturbing. Yeah. Treatment-wise, mostly we've been using behavioral therapies, things like progressive relaxation, limiting time in bed to increase sleep efficiency, uh, telling people to really only use their bed for sleeping or sex, not eating, not television, not just hanging about, um, and then hypnotic meds like benzodiazepines and the Z drugs, and those are really meant to help in the short term only. They're not things you should be on lifelong. You're not supposed to really take them much beyond a two or three week period. Right. And some people out there listening may have heard of some people who need, or maybe even one person who needs these types of medication constantly, if they have severe narcolepsy or or something where there's a true neurological disorder stopping them from sleeping, then these are medications of last resort, along with all the behavioral modifications that you can use. But those are extremely rare cases that should not be used as the example. And with that, I believe we have wrapped up all the minimum things you need to know about sleep medicine. Now, there are a couple of Fun announcements, so please don't tune out yet, everybody. I promise I'll keep it fast. <laughs> don't, yay, take finger off that fast forward button. I swear I will reach through this microphone. Firstly, and most importantly, if you like the show, and hopefully you do because you're here listening to us, unless you've already fast forwarded, we now have a Patreon account. The link is in the show notes. Now, the show is free, it always will be. 
but we would still really, really love your support. It will help us buy better sound equipment. It will help us reach out and offer a small amount of compensation to guests so we can have even more people come on and talk to you. Mostly I've been paying them in dinners and you know, effusive thank yous. <laughs> if you sign up for a Patreon account, you can donate as much or as little as you want. And there are rewards associated with donating. It is an ongoing donation. It's not like Kickstarter where it's a one and done. So if you donate as little as a dollar a month, that you could help support the show at least in part for only 12 bucks a year if you want to be very frugal about it, and that's oh. okay. And for only a dollar a month, we will thank you by name <laughs> in an episode. If you want to be very generous and give us $25 a month, we will bring you on as a co-host for one of the journal clubs. And there are a range of other prizes on offer. So nobody should feel obligated, but we would really appreciate and I will make a few additional announcements on upcoming episodes. So we do have a Patreon page. <laughs> As always, we love to hear your comments, concerns, questions, and feedback on the Facebook page or on Twitter. I'm at Dr. J Comedy. Ward is at Travel and Medicine. Santosh is at Toshifro. We want to hear from you. When I say we want to hear from you, we want travel correspondence. We want to bring travel back into this show. So if you have a fun travel story, even if it doesn't relate to medicine, send it to us. Yeah. Okay. We're happy to read um, it on air. Don't worry. We will, uh, as Click and Clack love to say on Car Talk, we will obfuscate it and we'll make it HIPAA compliant <laughs> and make sure that nobody knows that if there are any embarrassing details that it's you. Um, it could be to Dayton, Ohio. It could be to the furthest reaches of Antarctica. <laughs> we want to hear your travel stories. Oh, yeah. Finally, our theme music is composed by Rachel Ledger. Thank you, everybody, for your support. If you want to keep doing it monetary-wise, that would be great. If you don't, at least talk to us. We'd love to hear oh, yeah. from you. And until next time, as always... Happy travels, and don't let the bed bugs bite. <laughs> that was creepy. Bye, guys. I'm awake now. It's on me. <laughs>
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.